This is UNS Talks, a podcast by the architecture and design firm UN Studio. As part of our ongoing research into the future of playgrounds, we are very happy to welcome Denisa Kolarova, co-author of the book Aldo van Eyck, 17 Playgrounds, to the UN Studio office in Amsterdam to discuss the playgrounds. Van Eyck's playgrounds are scattered across Amsterdam and were born out of a reaction against the post-war functionalist plan for the city. In that sense, Van Eyck's playgrounds are urban and socio-cultural interventions. For the children who use Van Eyck's playgrounds, they are spaces for imagination and creativity. Non-hierarchical and minimal, they encourage growth, interaction, and social cohesion between children. Unfortunately, of the 700 playgrounds that Van Eyck designed for Amsterdam, only a handful remain as some of the most significant political and social pieces of architecture in the city. In her talk, Denisa compares Van Eyck's playgrounds to playgrounds today, which are overly designed and leave little room for interpretation. And I'm going to try to introduce you to the large-scale project of Aldo Van Eyck. We started to be busy with this project with Anna van Linen in 2013, which was actually our graduation year in the Retold Academy Graphic Design Department. And uh, why it became very much interesting for us, uh, it was mainly because we were observing two types of playgrounds in a cityscape of Amsterdam. On one hand, it was like a plastic catalog playgrounds, and on the other hand, the city was hiding like unknown number of these uh, playgrounds which were more elementary shaped and they were merging with the city tissue of Amsterdam much more better. And what we observed was different materiality and different interactions of children on both of these cases. So we started to be very much intrigued by the playgrounds, although we didn't know who was the author of them at the time. Uh, so in the beginning, uh, we, uh, when we discovered that the author was Aldo van Eyck, uh, which is like well-known architect, mostly for his architecture, uh, we were much more curious to find out about the story. So we were going to a playground, observing how they look like, and then we started to visit archives to understand in which context this work was created. And maybe in the beginning we felt, we felt like it was a very small project and they are here and there. But we were very uh, intrigued by the, by the subject even more when we discovered that there were over 700 of them in Amsterdam. And what we have been confronted with when we were walking around the playgrounds in Amsterdam was that they are being replaced by a new play elements. And this big contrast between what's happening nowadays and what, what was the planning of these playgrounds before uh, triggered a lot of questions. So we wanted to uh, speak and like inform the public about this subject and probably also question the municipality. What is the reason behind this kind of contrast? And we, we were basically curious, is there someone responsible for what you are just seeing at the moment? Um, as we know, catalog playgrounds, they don't offer so much uh, creativity and interpretation. They are mostly, even in their own catalogs, they already uh, name and give certain kind of category of, of play and certain kind of typology uh, offers children only a world which is predetermined. So we were definitely against this category and we were diving into category of Aldo van Eyck playgrounds in order to understand what kind of concepts, thinking and philosophies behind 
his project of playgrounds. And actually contemporary, we are also focusing more on the catalog playgrounds, but this is our more recent research, but I'm gonna more talk about the Aldofanac story today. Uh, so with uh, trying to look into archives and uh, speaking with different people in Amsterdam who knew something about playgrounds of Aldofanac, we have discovered that the subject wasn't very much discussed in 2013. And we felt like there is a need to bring, bring back this, this conversation and also to double check with the, uh, with the citizens, what do they think about it, if they know who was Aldo van Eyck and that he designed the playgrounds. And the whole story behind it felt like it needs to be communicated. And since we were graphic designers and we felt like there is not many books on Aldo van Eyck playgrounds specifically, last one was in 2002, we wanted to maybe bring a pub publication that would be a small gesture and that would be more of an of a activator of conversation if you can say it this way like that uh, so we were not really caring about bringing some kind of a retrospective of acad academic uh, and historical writing but we wanted to more trigger the conversation so it, it was in a way a tool to start a conversation with people who are curious about this subject um, so now we're gonna, I'm going to introduce you more to the history of Aldo van Eyck playgrounds in terms of how it was commissioned and where was Amsterdam at the time. Uh, since you probably all know the Amsterdam expansion plan, uh, afterward period in Amsterdam was in a need of new housing because the, there was a big baby boom currently in the, in the Netherlands but in the whole Europe. So the city needed to accommodate quite a lot of families with children and um, Pretty much uh, the, the system of going about it was uh, the functionalistic approach because the head of the office uh, city department was at the time uh, Van Eisteren, the figure which might be well known to you. Uh, and he was like thinking in terms of, as Siam was thinking at the time, in terms of categories of how we're going to place the traffic, how we're going to place the recreation and the uh, work, everything in the categories which are kind of separated islands in the city. So he wasn't, he was looking at the city more top down rather than bottom up. And on the other hand, the city was full of these uh, uh, sites or overlooked locations where children were finding their own uh, games and their own way of, of dealing with the urban space. So at the time, uh, the very important figure, which is not often mentioned, was Jacoba Mulder. And she was an assistant of Van Eastern in the beginning. She's actually the one responsible for the Amsterdam Sebos, and she did another landscape project in Amsterdam around 40s, 50s. And uh, she was an important figure because she had this kind of uh, uh, advocacy for greenery, for children, and she was pushing the program of playgrounds very much in Amsterdam. So she made a lot of space and a lot of, uh, she advocated for a lot of budget for this project to be able to be realized. In that sense, she's I would say as important figure as Aldo van Eyck in this project and it wouldn't ever happen if this collaboration wouldn't start. So she's the one who commissioned Aldo van Eyck and uh, against the fact that Aldo van Eyck and van Eastern had quite a different ways of looking into urban planning because Aldo van Eyck was more looking from bottom up and van Eastern from top down. Uh, she felt like this type of assignment would be very good for Aldo van Eyck to take on. Uh, actually, uh, she herself was living in the area of Amsterdam South 
this is, we are looking at the archive image of the Bartholomew Pline. She lived in this neighborhood and she was observing a lot from her window, the children were playing in dirt and she was questioning how, uh, how can we do it better as, uh, from a position of urban planners. So the first commission for Aldo van Eyck was this uh, square, Bartholomew Pline, and this was in 1947 where they realized the first playground as an experiment. So they wanted to see what's going to happen if they insert this playground there and whether it's going to go and be in use. And it became a very successful playground and the neighborhood started to pay attention that there is a new playground and they started to even call to the city office and asking if they could have the same playground in their neighborhood. So we see a big collaboration between city and the citizens in terms of looking for locations and looking and asking for some kind of projects like playgrounds at the time. And basically, uh, so this project turned into a large-scale project. First, it started in the center of Amsterdam, so Aldo van Eyck was planning for the overlooked spaces, which were all around the center of Amsterdam, this kind of blind spot, uh, which sometimes he found himself, sometimes, uh, as I said already, citizens informed about, and he was transforming them into a completely new uh, public spaces and therefore playgrounds. But uh, they changed a lot of the uh, social interaction in the city because the places which before were not visited, were kind of like not used, suddenly turned into spaces of meeting points and where the neighborhoods uh, organized different kind of whatever social happenings. So it wasn't just uh, playgrounds for children, but it definitely brought the neighbors together. And is this image? Yes. Uh, and as we can see, sometimes it was between the buildings, sometimes it was like uh, just a dump uh, of some kind of like uh, old cart, uh, whatever space. And there suddenly the playground was re replacing the whole new idea of what a space can be and mean. Uh, in many cases, we have to also consider the fact that uh, playgrounds at that time were coming as a need also to push a bit of traffic away because at the time the traffic was taking on and of course we cannot compare it to nowadays situation because it's even more problematic, although we have a lot of things happening against it. But a lot of projects which Aldo van Eyck did was also pushing traffic back and making human or the children first. So somehow in this example, we can see it very good because the crossroad was even like shortened for the cars, but it was given a space to children play. Uh, so as I have mentioned, through the 1947 to 1978, there were over 700 playgrounds. So in the beginning, there were these like blind spots in the city center, and later on they became the, a part of the general expansion plan of Amsterdam. So maybe the assignments which were happening in the beginning were, were much more interesting for Aldo van Eyck in terms of that they were always different in, in, in the type of floor plan and they were very unpredictable. So he could exercise different kind of compositions. And later on they became a bit more homogeneous because the expansion of Amsterdam was going in this kind of functionalistic way. So the playground became always a square kind of a plot in front of the house. So these kind of assignments were not that interesting anymore, but he still like was uh, working on them towards the whole years, so the last one in 1978. Uh, well, what is important also to think about is that Aldo van Eyck was an architect, but uh, he was also a designer in these terms because he designed all of the play elements themselves. 
this is the original drawing we are looking at, uh, which is actually the kind of a floor plan of different play elements. He called them tools of imagination. Uh, why tools of imagination? Because he was very much paying attention to the fact that play elements are elementary in shapes and therefore they trigger the imagination in children by their use. So he didn't want it to predetermine in their shape what they are. So we're gonna be looking at uh, different play elements he designed and then I'm gonna talk more about the composition of them. So this is one of the drawings we made, uh, just a simple drawing to explain uh, the previous image and it's about like um, these tools of imagination. There were climbing frames like igloos, then there were jumping stones, then there were tumbling bars, sand pits in different shapes and sizes. And uh, yeah, that's about it. So when we go to the sand pit, it was usually uh, the element which was the, m the largest element on the playground. He usually placed it first, but he never tried to place it into the center, but always look for, for a place on it, uh, on the floor plan, and then he placed all the other elements around it in relation with it. Um, so he was not just uh, housing uh, uh, sand into a box, but he was really looking for some kind of um, design that would also allow children to do different activities in a, in a sand pit itself. And in many ways he uh, accustomed it also to parents who are like usually on the playground with the children. So in this image we see how he lowered the rim and made it wide enough so the parents can sit there or smaller children can actually enter the playground easier. So he made this kind of small entrances for them. In the playground itself you could find like this kind of a tables uh, which were serving children to actually use them when they were building something or playing different games. And later on, these uh, tables turned into jumping stones. So first he used them in the playground, in the, in the sand pit, and then he used them as a separate element as jumping from one to another, but always in a different organization and never in a symmetrical order. Uh, this is a very nice example and pretty rare one in the orphanage of uh, Aldofanag, which is uh, the building he designed in the south of Amsterdam. There was one of the sand pits where he implemented a very rare element, which was this kind of uh, uh, bunks on, the, on the each edge of the playground. And it was very much weather-friendly playground in that terms, because when the water gets collected in these uh, four bunks, then the children can also combine the sand and the water. In that sense, it was very nice term of thinking about like the the climate and how you can use it or like engage it in a design. So these are uh, tumbling, tumbling bars. They existed in different sizes uh, because he, want, he was really looking for uh, play elements that would uh, be used by children of different ages. So in that sense, he didn't categorize children into from two to six as we have it nowadays in the catalog playgrounds. Um, and these are the, the original technical drawings of a catalog which City later on had, because they actually the authorship of the play elements never belonged to Aldo van Eyck, but it's um, authorship of the city since he was employed by the municipality of Amsterdam at the time. These are the uh, climbing frames called igloos, uh, and these ones exist in different sizes and with different openings, and it's pretty much still very uh, represented in the Amsterdam, so they are not as rare as other elements. Here we see it in the playground. 
And these are the tunneling funnels, which uh, perhaps we will have a chance to see also tomorrow. It's a more of a rare, rare element, but he always placed them next to each other. So the children could also have this kind of excitement of climbing from one to another. Uh, so this, is, this one is preserved by the Rijksmuseum, and maybe we see it tomorrow in their garden. And these are the climbing arches. So he, here is a good ex example to explain that he was looking for play elements that wouldn't be for individual use. He was really looking for size of a play element that would accommodate as many children as possible because he believed that the games and play happens in interaction of children. And well, this, this is also quite of a contrast of what we see nowadays in, a, in a catalog playgrounds. And this is a very good image which illustrates how popular there were. There, there were. Actually, all the images are always photographed with children from the archive because he was very much paying attention that his playgrounds are documented full of children and full of activities. So in that sense, this was one of the way he visualized them or projected them for public. This is the climbing mountain, very rare sculpture element. Uh, well, uh, in this case, it doesn't exist anymore, but there is one of, um, one of it preserved in uh, Fondo Park. It's an interesting element because in, in here he was trying to achieve that the children access different heights and therefore they have different viewpoints on their surroundings. So they therefore exercise some kind of uh, views and positioning as, as any other mountain you can imagine. Depending where you stand and where you look, you, you have a new perception of the world around you. So this is the way he was trying to conceptualize this element. So all the play elements were placed in the in a different composition on on the playground so he never tried to repeat the same composition twice he was always looking for a different and unique composition of playgrounds and very important philosophy he considered was like philosophy of labyrinth uh, this is not just in the playgrounds but also in the in the Sonsbeck pavilion which is the drawing we see there and he was looking for some kind of a rhythm or flow through space or through a place he was designing. And in that sense, it wasn't a labyrinth like having one access and one entrance, but he was looking for as many ex uh, accesses and as many entrances as possible because he, he believed that the children can just come, run through, have a, have a certain kind of game and, and exit from another place. So this was one of the things he considered a lot when he was designing the compositions and relation of these playgrounds and this is very much also incorporated in the in the plan of a orphanage building in the south it's it's almost like you all always rediscover a new space when you are going around the building or inside of the building so it's not very much like you can predict what's what's coming so he really took care of that you can get lost in a building and in this in this way when you get lost maybe you meet someone and the dialogue happens or you encounter something which you wouldn't encounter the day before. And in that sense, he was trying to also design the playgrounds. He uh, differentiated uh, different play areas by giving them a different floor tiles. In this example, we can see clearly that uh, some of them were lighter colors, some of them were darker. And this is the way he demarcated specific play areas, although he didn't predetermine how children should play, but he was considering it important as giving an extra opportunity for children to invent a new game. Uh, his playgrounds were never fenced off. Uh, also, maybe we have to think of a context because maybe before the traffic was not as 
brutal as we have it nowadays. Uh, the only demarcation he did was like greenery and benches. So he, f he believed that in this kind of natural demarcation, children understand their kind of limits or the limits of the location, but it's not necessary to put them in a kind of a cage because that completely changes the feeling of the space. Here we see a good example also of different floor tiling. Uh, and his idea was basically that uh, all the elements should be in relation with each other and there is non-hierarchical composition of these elements. Therefore, uh, elements are as important as the spaces between them and there should be relation within the, the particular elements and, and it shouldn't be underestimated that even on the, on the floor, only with tiles, children can invent something new. So he considered this of an equal importance to elements themselves. And also he, he was very much aware of the fact that children like to run, jump, and uh, he gave them enough space to practice that. He never designed the playgrounds or play elements that would be movable. Only one tourniquet which was implemented in the beginning, but later on it wasn't manufactured. But he was looking for static play elements and because he believed that children will create activity around them. So the mo movement will happen by the actor, not by the object itself. Uh, he very much considered also parents when looking into designing a playground since he knew that a lot of ma mothers accompany their children when they're on the playgrounds. So he uh, included the benches around the play areas and he was very much looking for the composition of a playground that the mother would be able to see from one viewpoint till the end. So if something would be happening with her children, she can have a good overview. And they, this was basically the supervision which existed before on the playground, before the safety regulations came. So uh, this is a good example which actually shows this kind of overview he tried to create. So back to uh, our publication, we were mainly trying to bring 17 playgrounds as an example of what is still left in Amsterdam and what you can see if you are interested to go and walk around the city and see several locations. I have to say that since we made the publication, a lot has been changed already. So even things you find in a publication now might be that they are not existing anymore. So the situation was pretty dramatic when we started and it it didn't get that much better. Uh, so we proposed 17 locations as an easy way to go around the playgrounds and see it for yourself and get a certain kind of feeling of how different spaces were executed and how they were uh, experimented with. So in this way, we organized the book and put in chapters. But in the beginning, maybe we were also questioning how much of a relevant uh, how, how much relevant are still these playgrounds of Aldo van Eyck? Isn't it just a nostalgia about looking, into be looking backwards and thinking that these playgrounds are still amazing, but they are not in such a big use? But on the contrary, we discovered a lot of times when, when being on the playgrounds themselves and observing what's going on, that children are very much still excited about them and they still serve a lot of use and they don't need so much maintenance also because they are produced from materials which are very much uh, for over 20 years, they didn't have to be maintained uh, that dramatically as other new playgrounds. And this is an example of the first playground ever constructed. Um, there is a kindergarten near to it and we one afternoon were observing this kind of scene. I'm going to just play. At this point, Denise shows us videos of children playing in Van Eyck's designs, showing us how you can only really understand Van Eyck's designs 
by observing the spaces in use. Following that, we see videos of other people using the playgrounds. Adults exercising, parents talking, and other activities that show the important socially cohesive role that playgrounds play in society. This is also a wonderful, a wonderful park, but like nowadays it's pretty much changed. In some of the examples, like this one, you can see that only the certain elements are preserved, but the rest of the playground disappeared uh, fully. And uh, this Wonder Park example I like to show because I think this is the way how you can also not understand the work of Walter van Eyck very much. So this new structure was put there in 2012, I think, by a company Carve. And in terms of like having an overview of one side of the playground to the other, this structure kind of completely blocked the view of mothers. So when being on the playground, we speak a lot to the mothers as well. And here they complain a lot about the fact that they have to always like change from one place to another when their children move around. So they find it very uh, like unpractical in that way because they, this, this structure is completely blocking their view, which was not there before. This is the original uh, Bertalman Klein, the first playground with a small new addition. And in the background there, you can also see the Aldofanai monument, which is referring to the rainbow, uh, which was this famous quote. And this is very much of a playground difficult to take a picture of because it's a very chaotic composition, but as well as this is the reality of these playgrounds nowadays, we like to show that uh, a lot can be improved. We never think that out of an egg playground should be preserved and nothing should be added, but we believe that there is a way of understanding this philosophy and his concept and working with it to avoid situations like this. And this is another situation where new play elements took place in the center of playground and the jumping stones are just serving as a demarcation. And because of the safety regulations, this kind of safety floor takes place usually on most of the playground nowadays. And even the ones which were reconstructed from Aldofanike, they have nowadays the safety floors, which wouldn't be that bad, but in many examples you lose the actual composition or you don't preserve even the floor tiling of them, which could be still done, I think if there would be an awareness of that. And this is just another example where only few jumping stones were left and they were just like colored. So basically at this point, uh, we know that all the funny, uh, play elements are, where you can order them also from a catalog called board play. They, they have rights to tumbling bars and uh, climbing igloo. They are done from very different material like, uh, and also with in a different way, so you can still recognize the original and the new ones. And a lot of times they also put a color coating on them without any specific reason, which I think is something to question in, in designing for playgrounds nowadays. Like, how much color do you need? What kind of color uh, would you consider for merging it with environment? Because although you might think that color connects with children very much and colorful playgrounds are uh, attractive. On the other hand, it turns off a lot of uh, children of different age or children in puberty or even adults don't feel anymore like they are invited to these places. So I think we have to be looking for playgrounds that are for all generations as Aldo and I designed, uh, designed them and think about them. And that has to do a lot with element of color as well. And in a, uh, in a process of like working on our publication, we also, uh, like as we saw that the, the thing is very tragic and the playgrounds are disappearing, 
we were confronted with finding like one of the igloo, which was in a kind of devastated stage. It was in a kindergarten and it was not used, but we were in our graduation year and we were very much interested about this object. So we came and we were questioning like uh, whether we can borrow it, where we can use it and try to temporarily uh, set it up as a playground. And since the kindergarten, they said they don't need it at all, that we should just like take it and never return it. We were like very happy with this object and we were planning to use it as a part of our graduation in, a, in, a, uh, in front of the Rithfeld building. Oh, in the beginning we thought it's gonna be a very easy assignment, it turned out to be much more difficult than we thought. Uh, but uh, we have been able to place it like a little bit like hands-on approach in the garden of Rithfeld Academy. And this was a very great experience. As much as for us, we also saw how much this, this element speaks to children regardless of where it is placed. I mean, it was placed illegally and we had a small problem, so it was placed as a kind of a sculpture art object. This is the only way this would pass. But uh, it was used every day of this week of graduation in multiple ways. And we liked that it brought like a lot of people together in the place where they wouldn't like be. So it was a b more like a bonfire around which things happened. So here we have a different kind of examples of how it was used. And since it's not allowed to have it placed on the floor because it, it doesn't comply with the safety regulation, we have to be storing it in a Burgwehrplatz, which is like a small uh, organization in the uh, west of Amsterdam. And they are, they are working a lot with children and they are doing different workshops. So they were so kind that we could have placed it on their container as a temporary solution. In the meanwhile, we travel with this object to different places because it became a kind of a symbol of what we are speaking about. And uh, I am mostly fascinated by the fact that whether it's indoors or it's outdoors, it always finds its audience, like in this exhibition. And later on, we also got another climbing frame, which is currently in the same place, but we are thinking whether we will temporarily place them somewhere or we will be still moving them around since we feel that this mobility of these objects also works. Here it's in a gallery with a curator sitting on it. And this is when we brought it into Brno Biennale in Czech Republic. And a part of the igloo frame, we also try to communicate uh, or like speak or open up the conversation, not just in, a, in an art world, but also we try to speak to architects, sometimes to policy and uh, decision makers in the city because we felt like Okay, in academia maybe this subject was discussed, but we f feel like general public sometimes doesn't really know about the story of Aldo van Eyck. That's why we communicated in different forms. And in 2016, we were trying to also bring all the information uh, into our website, uh, sentinelplaygrounds.com, which was developed by Carla Pierre. And we were really looking for design that would like show the present stage of each of the playgrounds. So it's still under kind of like development in terms of that a lot of things are changing, but we are basically mapping them in a real kind of uh, in the present time. And so you can always click and look into list of playgrounds and archive where we use most of the literature which we are using in our research. And we collaborated, like we feel like the, this work only makes sense, what we are doing when we collaborate with other people. So we always ask other artists and designers to give their view on what, how they, their, their touch or their view on Aldo van Eyck playground. So this was a collaboration with photographer, Jonas Verespe, where he also documented them one more time. And we used it in exhibitions. 
and here we were even like authors of trying to manufacture a climbing frame which was slightly tilted because a lot of times you find that display elements by use they are not like really destroyed but sometimes they have this kind of marks of uh, of being used and a lot of times on the tumbling bars you feel this kind of a line because a lot of children were like uh, uh, tumbling on it so this was for the exhibition in Estonia in Tallinn where we tried to bring it there and in our uh, collaboration with Rags Museum we're trying to actually inform uh, the public about the one play element direct, uh, which Rags Museum has in their depot. It is the large climbing element which was taken from this playground, but it's not in use anymore and they are, they are thinking about what to do with it. So we were doing a small video work in which we manifested our opinions about playground design. To finish her lecture, Denisa shows us a video from her curated exhibition with Anna von Lingen and Harm Stevens displaying Aldo van Eyck's playgrounds in the depot Rijksmuseum in Lelystad. You can visit van Eyck's playgrounds for yourself, for free, by strolling through the streets of Amsterdam. In fact, there are several near the UN Studio office in the pipe. To sign off, keep an eye out on our website for more research on future playgrounds. And in the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to UNS Talks on SoundCloud, iTunes, Podbean, or your preferred podcast provider. Until next time.